Time for swordplay. Alex, a new study put out by Arizona Christian University found that nearly 40% of self-identified Christians do not believe the Holy Spirit is a real living being. Wow. You know, Nick, on a related note, a study from SU found that nearly 40% of self-identified tuna fish sandwiches are not actually made from real living tuna fish. SU. Stanford, eh? No, um, Subway University. Oh, yes, Subway, you know, fair Subway, <laughs> the old alma mater. This is Swordplay, the, where we offer cutting-edge perspective on Scripture. Uh, we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, that's right. We did the introduction last week. Now we're jumping into the text, and there is a lot of foundational stuff here. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. In fact, let's go ahead and dive in here. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Alex, talk for a moment. What beginning is John referring to? You know, there are many beginnings in the Bible. You have the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, where the Spirit hovers over the waters. Then a new beginning with Noah's family after the waters of the flood, marking the previous time as the antediluvian world. Then a new beginning for Yahweh's chosen people through Abraham, marked by their salvation through water when they crossed the Red Sea. And then a new beginning for humanity through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, when water pours out with blood from his pierced heart on the cross. And we share in that newest beginning in our own baptism today. But of all the beginnings, there still remains that which is the beginning of beginnings, a moment when there was nothing but God the Father and God the Son, before all other things came into being. This beginning, which philosophers call the prime beginning or the first cause principle, can be the only beginning to which John refers. If you go back to the prologue of 1 John, marked out by these first five verses, these encapsulate what the audience would have already heard from the prologue to John's gospel. So the word which became flesh was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. The word is thus outside of created things, himself then being uncreated and co-eternal with God. Much to the chagrin of Arianism, I know, and its Jehovah's Witness inheritors. To clarify, though, the word comes forth from God. I believe that. But it's in the same way that light comes forth from the sun. One proceeds from the other, but they simultaneously are in existence. The moment the sun exists is the same moment that light proceeds from it. You don't have one without the other. And so it is with the eternal God, uh, God the Father and God the Son. Now there are false teachers in John's day who wish to separate God the Father from God the Son and the Creator God from the Christ and the Most High God from the Word. And ultimately, make Jesus a normal man born of Joseph and Mary. Some of these false teachers will even purposely twist John's own writings to their own destruction. Look carefully at how John will describe Jesus in his writings, especially when he speaks to our own confessions, and we'll get to that in a moment. What do you think, Nick? That's well said. Uh, The beginning of uh, this epistle does differ slightly from the beginning of John's gospel. The gospel starts in the beginning, in Arche. And it proceeds to establish the eternal relationship between Father and Son, as you've outlined. 
The epistle begins discussing that which was from the beginning, ho in ap arcase. And so the gospel begins with who? God and logos. While the epistle begins with what? That is to say, the word of life. So the divine revelation of life with God, uh, that is eternal life, uh, which began even in the Garden of Eden, but was lost but has now been regained through the historical manifestation of that life and the person and message of Jesus Christ is that which was from the beginning. In addition, uh, the completion of the sentence in uh, verse 3, uh, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that further underscores the life-giving word of God. Now, if John is not directly confronting uh, a proto-Gnostic heresy in his day, which would find full bloom just decades later, then he is prophetically challenging Gnostic ideas which are coming down the pike for the church. Uh, Valentinus and his disciple Marcus were coming. They were bringing with them their uh, Ogdoad, our Ogdoad heresy, a twofold being called unspeakable in silence, produce another twofold being called Father and Truth, which produces word and life and human and church. These are all Greek names, by the way, that I've translated for us here for the sake of uh, ease and recognizing this. But notice that the Gnostic heresy separates logos and life, the word and the life. And they actually produce 10 more powers. And this is all according to uh, Irenaeus in his Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 11, uh, Section 1. Ptolemy and Calabasas are they produced a similar heretical speculations, uh, and he records that in the next chapter, chapter 12, in Book 1 of Against Heresies. Irenaeus records that. Uh, indeed, Irenaeus meticulously documents the heresies, both speculative and numerological, of the Gnostics throughout the second century, many of them adding their Gnostic spin to Christianity. So praise God that he moved John through the Holy Spirit to write this epistle which proclaims the truth concerning the word of the life. Uh, that is what was from the beginning. And so word and life are not a dyad, which is the product of two other dyads. The life, the eternal life, was with or toward, it was pros ton patera. Uh, it was toward the Father, making eternal life deeply personal, uh, as well. And that is something that is foreign to the Gnostic heresy. All this idea of, a, of personal gods and personal beings and all that. Uh, so it's almost as if God knew what was coming and he gave his church exactly what she would need in order to combat the heresy that was coming her way. So uh, that's a bit about that which was from the beginning. We can move on here to uh, verse 2. Uh, the life was made manifest, John says. Um, how was eternal life manifested to them, Alex? Yeah, we commonly use the term eternal life to refer to our hope of existence in the resurrection, that yes, we die once now in the flesh, but we do not suffer the second death on the day of judgment, but are given new bodies that are fit for eternity. They're imperishable, undefiled, they will not fade away. Go back to First Peter chapter 1. John, however, uses eternal life as a title here for Jesus. 
and parallels the eternal life in verse 2 with the word of life in verse 1. The eternal life, which is the word of life, was with the Father in the beginning. So how could mortal beings wrapped in human flesh, such as John, ever see and touch the eternal life? And that's through the incarnation. The word of life wrapped himself in human flesh and became like us, so that through seeing him, we might become more like him. See our episode on theosis last season. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now notice that the word did not come down and rest upon previously existing flesh. That would be possession. Instead, the word itself became flesh, belonging to itself his own body, not borrowing anyone else's body for a time and then leaving like the false teachers were saying. What do you think, Nick? Uh, once more, uh, well said. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the play between the tenses of the verbs here in these opening verses, uh, John plays between the aorist tense verb, which has to do with uh, punctil- punctiliar action in the past, a snapshot event, uh, uh, versus uh, the, the perfect tense, which has to do with past completed action with present continuing results. And, and so John's playing with these in these opening verses concerning the incarnation, and it, I believe it's noteworthy. Uh, looked upon, uh, or uh, we have seen with our eyes, uh, and uh, touched. These are aorist verbs uh, pointing to the historical reality of an event in the past. Uh, also was made manifest or appeared, your translation may say. That's also an aorist uh, tense verb. And, and then John, he in that, is, is emphasizing the historical reality of the embodiment of eternal life. And then uh, heard and seen uh, here in verses 1 and 2 as well are perfect tense verbs. And, and that indicates that there are abiding effects of having seen and heard. It's as though the voice of the life incarnate is still resounding and, and the vision is still lingering. Uh, and so just, again, he's emphasizing the life appeared and as a result of that, there are these abiding results that uh, flow from that. So uh, very interesting, John masterfully weaving all of this together. Let's talk about, uh, well, John says, we've, we've heard and we've seen. He says it uh, multiple times in these opening few verses. Uh, Alex, why does John emphasize what he has seen and heard? Yeah, John's use of one's physical senses leaves little to no room for someone to separate the word of life from the incarnation. They have seen, they have touched, they have heard the word of life, uh, not some puppet, but the real eternal life in human flesh. And this testimony, coming from the apostles themselves, leaves the audience with a simple choice. Do you follow the false teachers who are not eyewitnesses of Christ? They did not hear or see or touch him. Or do you follow the apostles whom Jesus prayed would deliver the word by which all could believe? It's John seventeen twenty. What do you think, Nick? No, that's good stuff. Uh, and, and, and to situate the word of life, the life, the eternal life within human history, again, that, that would have been shockingly foreign to the impersonal aeons and emanations of the Gnostics. Such a, a flesh and blood historical Jesus would be anathema to the false teachers. We know this because of what John will say later on in chapter 4 and verse 2 about uh, spirits not confessing Christ as having come in the flesh. But any other Jesus other than the man of history, Jesus of Nazareth, that the apostles knew, 
Any other Christ other than that is a false Christ. He can't die on a cross. He can't shed his blood. He can't save. He can't forgive. He can't cleanse. He cannot give life. This is why John is so uh, clear about having heard and seen and all of this being an eyewitness. In verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We, he's been using the uh, first person plural extensively in these opening verses. Alex, who is the we that is writing and why does it complete the writer's joy? Well, later on in chapter 2, John will say, I am writing to you, or I have written to you. So if John uses the first person I in chapter 2, then, yeah, why does he, here in chapter 1, verse 4, say these things we write? And so here I offer two options. First, John is using an amanuensis, in other words, a secretary, in penning this letter. And we know from other epistles uh, that using an amanuensis was common at the time. And while reading an epistle, you'll be hearing the voice of the author, but another voice chimes in at the beginning of the letter, or at the end of the letter, and says, I'm here too. I give my greetings. Hello. This amanuensis uh, often ends up being the same one who delivers the letter. He's the carrier to deliver the message. But I have a second option as well, and this is my preferred option. John may be referring to the other apostles when he says we. Now, when John uses we language in the first three verses, it does refer to the other eyewitnesses of the incarnation, Jesus Christ. So it would seem strange to have we change meanings without some additional cue within the text. But then what do we make of we write being in the present active tense? Uh, were the other apostles still alive and writing with John at that moment? Well, no. If this letter was written towards the end of the first century, then John is likely the last living apostle. But John may be using the present tense we write to show that though the other apostles have died, their word continues to live on by the church's receiving of the apostolic word. Thus, their word, the apostles' word, we, our, it agrees with and affirms with what John presently writes, what he's saying, what they should already know. And he'll say that later. You already know all things. What do you think, Nick? Again, well said. Uh, certainly the, the primary understanding of the we in the opening verses here is the apostolic college. Most commentaries are going to lean that direction. Uh, at the same time, this is not the only instance where John uh, witnesses or testifies to the message of eternal life. Uh, in 1 verse 5, we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. Uh, in 3 verse 11, he circles back to the message you heard. Very interesting uh, transition there from uh, the first person plural to the second person plural. Uh, John then circles back to the collective eyewitness testimony in uh, 4 verse 14. We have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And the epistle concludes with several we know statements in 5 verses 18 through 20. The we being in contrast with the little children to whom he's writing, 5 verse 21, makes that clear. And then you toss into the mix all those I write statements uh, that are found elsewhere in the book, not only in chapter 2, as you mentioned, also 5 verse 13, I write these things to you, believe in them as the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And it makes for a very interesting style, all of this does. Uh, so one other possibility is, is John is drawing a distinction between our fellowship, uh, which he, he talks about... Uh, there in verse 3 and also in verse 7, that is the, the fellowship of the church. Even those Christians who are with him, wherever he is when he writes this epistle, 
uh, the distinction between our fellowship, the church, and those false teachers who are distorting and perverting the message. Uh, they're not part of our fellowship. So it's, it's designed to boost the faith and the confidence these Christians have due to the heretical teachings that are assailing them. Uh, what witness do these proto-Gnostics offer? What, what have they heard, seen, beheld, or touched? Nothing. On the other hand, we, the apostles, are eyewitnesses. And you have heard the message too. And so we, collectively are in fellowship, and we share in the joy of fellowship with God. And so John writes to make uh, the joy of salvation, to make their fellowship complete. That is perfect in every regard. Uh, there is a textual variant here in verse 4. The This is represented in the, the New King James Version. I believe the King James also may retain this as well. But it says, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And that's a, it's a very minor difference in the original language, but I just point that out so that you, O oh, diligent listener, may be aware of it. Nick, you mentioned the word fellowship several times. I think that brings us to our grammar hammer. Grammar hammer. That was the grammar hammer. <laughs> you struck it. That's right. Grammar hammer. Nick, talk to us for a second about the word fellowship. Yeah, so a part of the segment is to hammer out the meaning of Bible words. Uh, that's that's what the grammar hammer is all about. So let's talk briefly about this word fellowship here. It appears in verses 3, 6, and 7. And the basic definition has to do with the sharing of common objects or the sharing of common ideals. And specific to this particular context, this would be eternal life. Uh, so sharing in eternal life, even the life that was embodied in Jesus Christ. Uh, sharing in love. Uh, sharing in light, and so uh, even sharing in God himself. That's the part of the idea here of fellowship. Uh, it is with the Father and with his Son, as verse 3 points out. Uh, in addition, this word fellowship, it denotes a mutual commitment to a common purpose. Cruz points this out in his uh, commentary that he offers on the letters of John for the Pillar New Testament commentary series. A mutual commitment to a common purpose. Purpose. Now, the depth of this concept reveals that this is deeper than a mere superficial attachment of a random collection of individuals, as Smalley says in his uh, contribution to the Word Biblical Commentary series. The, the, the possession of fellowship with us and with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that reveals how deeply profound this spiritual relationship is between humans and God Himself. So, fellowship is of divine origin through the mutual indwelling of the Son, even obtained by his blood, as we'll talk about in verse 7. And therefore, it exists at the human level within the church. Uh, that's what I see a bit about uh, fellowship here. Alex, what, what do you think? Yeah, one might say that this deep level of fellowship found in the church, as you described, is actually the beginning of what was lost in Eden, but now found in Christ. So, Nick, talk to us then about verse 5. What does John mean when he says that God is light? And, of course, I, this probably needs to include uh, the, the rest of the verse that, that says, In him there is no darkness at all. And so these are both positive and negative statements concerning the character of God. It is God's character, which is the standard for ethical practice by those claiming to have fellowship with him. And John is going to tease this out 
uh, through the rest of this chapter, verses 6 through 10, and also in other places uh, in his epistle. This will come to the forefront. But so what does John mean by God is light? I do not believe he means that he is a, a cosmic luminary like uh, the sun or the stars or the moon. Uh, it's, this, is, this is not something physical, though the, the physical brilliance of light may direct the metaphor toward God's glory. That's always something that is described as something brilliantly bright. But also uh, it is not uh, that God is a light bearer. Uh, he's not a created light source. Also, he's not a light among many other lights. Now, all this is critical because, again, assuming the historical construction offered in the introductory material, go back and listen to the previous episode for more on that. Assuming that historical construction, John is confronting the proto-Gnostic heretics of his day. Now, the Gnostic heresy, as I've mentioned, it will flourish in the next century under uh, Valentinus and his disciple Marcus and many others whose heresies, Irenaeus, catalogs in great detail in his work against heresies, but specific to this light motif. During their initiation ceremonies, some of which included mystic rites and what's called a nuptial couch, I believe, Alex, you mentioned how a lot of these false teachers then and today deal a lot with sex and things like that, and it seems that Irenaeus documented, yeah, these Gnostics back in his day were all about that as well, but during their initiation ceremonies, certain Gnostics would recite nonsensical Hebrew, Hebrew phrases, which are interpreted, uh, Irenaeus giving the interpretation, I invoke that which is above every power of the Father, which is called light and good spirit and life. Uh, this is Book 1, Chapter 21, uh, Section 3. Uh, also, there was the heresy of Barbalos. Uh, and this, Barbalos was the virgin spirit mother above, who through contemplation of the emanations of the father, who cannot be named, the father cannot be named, she generated light that the father beheld and anointed with his own goodness. Now in turn, Christ, mind, eternal life, incorruptibility, prognosis, will, and a host of other aeons magnified the great light and magnified Barbalos. Again, in Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 29, Section 1. These were the vain speculations of the Gnostics, and perhaps such uh, vain speculations, the roots of it were finding fruition in John's day. But if nothing else, they, again, were coming down the pike for the church. Uh, and so whether it was a contemporary exhortation or a prophetic exhortation, or maybe a bit of both, John is clear. God is light. God inherently, by his existence, is uncreated light. And so by this, John provides a penetrating description of God. God is absolute moral perfection. God is completely holy, set apart, unlike anything else in creation. And, and this also touches on uh, the moral aspect or the moral character of God. But God is also the intellectual ground for reality and truth. And so John's going to reference truth and how we need to do truth in verses 6. And uh, also verse 80 mentions truth. And so God, he is majestic in his glory. And again, that may uh, circle back to that physical idea of light, but uh, that's the positive statement. Darkness, on the other hand, 
would be all things which do not conform to God's character. And so darkness would be all things inglorious, false, and unholy, all things containing moral imperfection or which comes up short of absolute moral perfection. Again, this theological statement sets the trajectory for the remainder of chapter 1 as well as the rest of the book. And it should be noted that this message, it did not originate from humans. John and the apostles didn't just sit around speculating and coming up, well, maybe God is light. No, John is clear. We have heard it from him, from Jesus Christ, God the Son, who has revealed the Father. And so John and those with him, they merely proclaim what they have heard from him. So uh, that's a bit that I see here about God is light. Alex, what say you? Yeah, uh, God is light. Okay, so coincidentally, you know, we were looking at Psalm 36 last Sunday for church, and Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now, I simply come along and I, I second what Nick has already said, that God as light points towards his setting of the moral standard. When blind creatures live on a planet of darkness, it never occurs to them to say to one another, Hey, it's kind of dark in here. It's only by the introduction uh, of light that one can start to presume, by contrast, what is more or less light and what is more or less dark. And so it is with God. It is by his light that we set a standard and begin to identify light and darkness around us. And the culmination of this statement then becomes most practical when taken in hand with the incarnation. When we look at Jesus, we see what it means by example to walk in the light. And thus, when we imitate his standard, we share in fellowship with the word of life and come to see most clearly the revealing of the Father. Uh, But more on walking in the light in just a moment. First, uh, what does it mean then to walk in darkness, Nick, from verse 6? Yeah, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Walking is a metaphor for living. It's going to be used by John frequently throughout this epistle. So one either lives in the dark or lives in the light. And again, assuming the occasion that uh, has been put forward in uh, the introductory material, John's gospel has been misunderstood. It's been distorted. Now, he wrote contrasting light and dark in the gospel. He wrote, the light has come into the world, or the light came into the world, and the results of that coming remain, because it is a perfect tense verb there. And it is a statement concerning the incarnation. Now, despite this illumination, or perhaps because of it, People loved the dark more than the light, for their works were evil, John says in John 3 and verse 19. Indeed, those who love the dark are the ones doing evil things. They hate the light, and they do not come to the light, as 3 verse 20 of John's gospel says. So it would appear that walk in dark or walk in the darkness, this is John's suitcase language for loving darkness doing evil, wicked things, hating the light, uh, that is the revelation of God in Christ, and refusing to come to the light. Uh, And I say suitcase language, that's a phrase borrowed from N.T. Wright, who talks about, you know, when you go on a trip, you put all your stuff in the suitcase, and then you take the suitcase with you, and when you get there, you open it up, unpack everything. That seems to be the idea here of walk in darkness. You can open up the suitcase and unpack this, and this is what John seems to have in mind 
And that's why we made uh, a big deal about the connection between the gospel and this first epistle in the previous episode. So that's what I see here about uh, walk in darkness or walking in the dark. Uh, Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I like the intentional language that you used in describing someone who walks in darkness. Uh, No one accidentally walks in darkness. It's very much a belief system put into action. Now, the true Christian may at times be manipulated into thinking that they are walking in darkness, lacking eternal life, even condemning themselves in their hearts. And John will speak to those who are struggling in that way. But that's the thing. Someone who walks in darkness would never condemn themselves in their hearts. They do not struggle because they deceive themselves and will be the ones who say in their hearts that they have no sin, which actually means that they don't believe they will be held accountable for their sin, or they're not afraid of being held accountable because they love darkness so much. It's intentional. It's a choice. You don't look at Cain and say, oh, Cain accidentally killed Abel. No, no, it was a plan. It was an intention. It was a belief system put into practice. And that's what we have to realize is that if you love light, it may blow your mind to realize that some people don't love light. They love darkness and they work hard at it. Now, Nick, what are the results then of walking in darkness? Yeah, as John says, we lie and do not practice the truth. Uh, So twofold uh, results from walking in darkness. One, we lie. Uh, This person is claiming to have fellowship with the holy God, who is light, and there's no darkness in him whatsoever. And yet, while they claim to have fellowship with God, they are walking or living in darkness. They are loving darkness. They are doing evil, wicked things. They're hating the light. They're refusing to come to the light. All those things mentioned before all applies to this person. So, what does it mean? One's talk does not match their walk. Since the walk does not match the talk, that person is lying. Uh, and, and they continue to lie uh, and because of the present tense here. Uh, and we'll, we'll see the, the self-deceptive nature of this in verse 8. You know, we, we deceive ourselves. So they're not only lying to God and to other people, they're lying to themselves with all this. So that's the first uh, result, we lie. Second, and my English standard says we uh, do not practice the truth. And that's good, uh, emphasizing the idea there of practice, because again, it's another uh, present tense thing. But literally what John says there is we do not the truth. We're not doing truth. Uh, and and the, the verb here, the verb here for do shows us that John, for John, the truth is something we do. It's not merely intellectual exercises. The doing of truth, this is the opposite of doing evil things from his gospel in uh, John 3, verse 20. And so it is um, to, to do truth is to seek to avoid sin while doing good works unto God. In this case, uh, they're not doing that. They're doing the opposite of that. So uh, that's a bit about walking in darkness, or at least the results of it that I see here. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, that first result you mentioned, if we walk in darkness, we lie. We have to keep holding this epistle up against the backdrop of John's gospel. It is the devil who is a liar, and when he lies, he speaks his native language and is the father of lies, John eight forty four. There are times when everyone lies, but that's not John's point. John couches walking in darkness with lying because it denotes those belonging to the devil. The one who practices sin is of the devil, he'll say in chapter 3, verse 8. Those who practice sin walk in darkness 
They have their own uh, they have their own choices that they've made. They've thrown their lot in with the devil. They've rejected the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ instead to receive the Father of lies. It's it's one belief system. It's one's belief system. Whatever they believe, it's they put it into practice, and that can be for good or for bad, for light or for dark. So we have to wrap our minds around this, that there are those who love darkness and they put that belief system into practice, just like we have to put our belief system and our love for Jesus Christ into practice. And that's what we'll talk about now with walking in the light. Nick, what does it mean to walk in the light? Verse 7. Yeah, so given what we've been discussing here concerning living in the dark, this would be the antithesis to living in the dark. It's living in the light. This would be the hatred of the darkness. It would be to love the light. It would be to come to the light. Uh, it would be doing the truth, as we talked about. Uh, it is uh, receiving the revelation of God in Christ. It is ceasing to do evil and seeking to practice righteousness, as John will talk about in chapter 3. The Christian acknowledges the standard is God, his absolute moral perfection. And then the Christian seeks to live according to that standard of righteousness, truth, faithfulness, and holiness. Again, the, the proto-Gnostic would not have done this in as much as he would not acknowledge the standard, or he would make up his own standard, or, or, or he simply said such an objective standard, truth, does not exist. Man, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But um, for the Christian, living in the light of the revelation of God in Christ is to recognize that God determines everything about our conduct. Uh, what, what say you, Alex, about walking in the light? Walking in the light is the practice of our belief system, the working out of our salvation, our believing loyalty expressed in perseverance and commitment. Now notice how neither Nick nor I have said that the Christian must be morally perfect. Only that God himself is morally perfect, and we accept that standard by which we are both driven on towards sanctification, that's our transformation in the Christ-likeness, and forgiven by his propitiation. That's a big word in reference to our salvation and how that came about. We'll get there in chapter 2. Now, our track record was not perfect when we started our walk, and our track record would continue to have blemishes upon it as we march further towards the resurrection, were it not for Jesus constantly wiping the record clean by his blood. But by faith, we believe that, as Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's 1 Peter 5. 10. So walking in the light. It's not moral perfection, but it is continued loyalty expressed in that perseverance. Now, Nick, verse uh, 7 also says, though, that there are results for walking in the light, just like there are for walking in the darkness. So what are the results of walking in the light? Yeah, uh, it is similar. There are, again, uh, there's a twofold result uh, to walking in the light. One is we have fellowship with one another. Uh, that is, those who walk in the light have fellowship with every other light walker. This is believer-to-believer believer fellowship, which is in view here primarily. Uh, specifically, John's original readers will have fellowship with him and those who are with him. Now, this is significant that since he's already said, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so when the readers are in fellowship with the apostle and those who are with him, the implicit connection is fellowship with God. 
indeed, God fellowships all those who walk in the light, which in turn puts us in fellowship with one another. Uh, in fact, notice how it is as he is in the light that we walk in the light. We're in the light. He, God, is in the light. Uh, he himself is the light. All of this points to the fellowship that we enjoy, not only with one another, but also with our God. Now, the second uh, result has to do with Jesus's blood forgiving us of all of our sin. Christians who walk in the light do sin. The, the very next verse, uh, very, several verses, uh, verses 8, 9, and 10, are going to make this clear. We cannot claim we have no sin without being self-deceived or being void of the truth, verse 8 is going to tell us. Uh, we have sins that we need to confess in verse 9. And further, we cannot claim we have not sinned without making God a liar and being void of his word, as verse 10 will say. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, the walking in the light does not presuppose that it is a perfect or blameless walk. Uh, the blood of Jesus, his son, is needed to cleanse us of all of our sin. And if it were a sinless walk, we wouldn't need the blood of Christ in the first place. So uh, the blood of Jesus, his son, and by that phrase, by the way, John no doubt has in mind the blood that Jesus shed on the cross when he gave his life in violent death. It is the blood of Jesus which keeps on cleansing us. This is, a, again, a present tense verb. It doesn't stop purifying us of sin, though we do sin. All our sin never hits the record. It does not touch the light walker because of Jesus's ever-cleansing, ever-purifying blood. And as walking in the light is continuous, so the cleansing of all sin by the blood of Jesus is continuous. Now, it should be evident, let me just say, this does not mean, well, since Jesus' blood forgives me of all my sins, all the all income free, I'm going to do whatever I want. Walking in the light does not allow such a position. Further, when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to say, look, I'm writing so that you may not sin, right? But he understands, John, ever the elder, the pastor, the shepherd, knows the human reality is, but we do. And if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so we give praise, thanks, and glory to God for the precious blood of Jesus, which forgives us of all of our sin. Uh, so those are the two results that I see. Alex, what do you think about the results of walking in the light? Well, I think that's well said. And I'll only add that, uh, for me, walking in the light boils down to continued loyalty. It's your loyalty that keeps your conscience sensitive to sin. And thus, there will be times of guilt and even self-condemnation within your heart. But it's that same loyalty that believes God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. In other words, he understands where we are and our struggles and he'll still give us eternal life by his grace through his son who died in the flesh, bringing us all back into fellowship together as his children. Now, looking at everything, verses 8 and 10, there are still some who would say they have no sin. Why would someone say that? Nick? Yeah, I think it goes back to the uh, proto-Gnostic heresy that's threatening the church. It, it may be the construal of Jesus' opponents' claim to having never been enslaved or not born of fornication. We read those statements in John 8, uh, verse 30, verses 33 and 41. More likely, some early form of what would be the Gnostic heresy 
is at work <clears throat> parsing out the flesh from the spirit, uh, causing division between the, the, the material side of humans, the body, and the immaterial side of humans, the spirit. And they would say the body is evil because matter is evil, while the spirit is good because it's immaterial. It's not part of the material universe. So sins committed in the body, uh, they have no impact upon the soul. Therefore, I have no sin. My soul has no sin, even though I'm walking and all caught up in darkness. That may be what's going on here, what I think. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I think there are those who want to be their own light. Whatever banner uh, that would fall under in any given age, there are going to be those in every age who want to be their own light, their own standard, and thus they want to justify the practice of what we call evil by just swapping the standards. Under their light, they're not evil. But woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That's Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Now, Nick, how does John use the term confess in his letter? We're looking at verse 9. It also pops up later in chapter 2 and chapter 4. What do you think? Yeah, the, the root of this verb is homologeo, and <clears throat> broken down into its constituent parts, it could be understood as to speak the same word, the same, there's your prefix there, homo, and then word, logos, and so homologeo, uh, to speak the same word. And so uh, here in verse 9, <clears throat> we speak the same word about our sins as God does. It is sinful. We should avoid it. Um, however, the, the larger Johannine corpus shows another component, which is the public acknowledgement of a particular fact. And so John the Baptist in uh, John chapter 1 and verse 20, he confessed he was not the Christ. Uh, people would be put out of the synagogue if they confessed Jesus to be the Christ in uh, John 9, verse 22. Certain Pharisees did not publicly acknowledge their faith in Christ due to persecution concerns in chapter 12 and verse 42. And it seems that there is a similar usage that is found in 1 John, specifically concerning what a person, or rather the spirit within that person, publicly says about Jesus. Did he come in the flesh? Is he the Christ? Is he the Son of God? All of these are major confessional concerns for John. Failure to publicly acknowledge that Christ has come in the flesh and is the Son of God reveals a spirit that is not from God. So that's a bit about what I found about uh, the term confession as it is used in John's epistle. What do you think, Alex? Right. It seems to me that John uses confess in the way we might call a confession, a statement setting our essential religious doctrine. So for John, this epistle states that, yeah, we must confess our sins and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and came in the flesh. And if we have no sin, then why did Jesus die? That's the tie there that's trying to be untied by the false teachers. Uh, they would say Christ didn't die in the flesh because he didn't come in the flesh. Therefore, no one died for our sins because we have no need for that since we have no sin. Untie the Savior and you thus untie our salvation. And that leaves a void then 
for one to come along and insert their own light and their own standard. And that's exactly what they want to do. The end game is the same. It's sex, money, and power. So Nick, we cannot deny our sin. We must confess our sin. But what does that mean then for us today? There's how confession was done and how maybe it should still be done today. How should we go about confessing our sins today? Verse 9. Yeah, at least uh, two methods of confession of sins are mentioned in Scripture. One is uh, confession to God, and this seems to be John's emphasis here. We confess our sins to God, who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Uh, But then there's also the the second method, which is confession uh, of sin to fellow Christians. And this is James' emphasis in 5 verse 6 of his epistle. Go back and uh, listen to the archives. We've covered uh, the book of James back, I believe it was the end of season 2. Of course, one method does not exclude the other. In the midst of public confession to one another, the assumed audience includes God. And this shows that the proper Christian attitude toward sin is not to accept it or to affirm it. Sin must be admitted before God and abandoned, which is very different than what we hear a lot of today when it comes to sin and walking in darkness. We want to we want to affirm and we want to accept and we want to yada, yada, yada. That is not the biblical message. That is not the biblical emphasis on confession of sins, and it's certainly not John's emphasis here in 1 verse 9. So, Uh, that's a bit about what I see concerning the confession of sins as John talks about it and and how it shows up today. What do you think, Alex? Again, here we must consult John for more detail concerning John. At the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 21 through 23, it says, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you.'" And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "'Receive the Holy Spirit.'" If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Okay, now this is John's version of the Great Commission, if you will. As the Father has sent me, so I send you, is what Jesus says. Send them to do what? To deal with sin. Of course, they needed first the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. Jesus already told them that back in chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, that the Spirit would come. That's why it's to their advantage that Jesus goes. So the Spirit will come. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, even though we are in this church age, we still have sin within the church. That's John's point here in chapter 1. But whether it be from the world outside or from the church within, the church must confront sin, and that cannot be separated from the Great Commission. Now, the order of operation is all in its proper place. Here how this, here's how this happened, according to John. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit to the apostles, and then the apostles to the world. The world then comes to God for forgiveness through the church, and from there finds their way back to the Father. Both upon entering and while in the church, one sin is dealt with in the same way. It's through confession. So it seems to me that in order to confess our sins to God, it must be done in the context of the church. That's where the Holy Spirit is, along with the apostles and the elders who carried on that leadership after the apostles. Thus, James says in chapter 5, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, like you mentioned, to confess your sins to one another. If you remember in our podcast on James 5, we noticed how confession there was in the context of the elders. And the reconstruction we gave was that 
a man fell sick because of sin. And the elders came and prayed over him, and the man was healed. And the healed man had confessed his sin and continues to confess his sin and testify to the healing as he enters back into fellowship with the church so that his fellow believers will pray for him in his continued steadfastness. And so all of this is to say that in 1 John, yes, we have a statement of doctrine that we agree with God concerning our sin, but we also have to keep in mind the way in which that doctrine was practiced in the church community, that confessing our sins to God was practiced by our confession of sin to one another, especially the elders, and even in a wider group of fellow believers for the purpose of prayer and continued healing. Now, at the end of the day, the Father will forgive whomever he chooses to forgive of any sins. That's his prerogative. But we have here a promise, a promise that sins will be forgiven wherever they are also forgiven within the church through the elders. They're the ones who carried on the work of the apostles. And yes, someone walking in darkness, sure, they can fool the church. They can lie. They can put on the sheep's clothing. They can deceive everybody. They can deceive themselves throughout this whole process. But no one can fool God. And Jesus will tell those who practice lawlessness, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's, that's my rant on confession. <laughs> so, Nick, well, the last question, verse 10, um, how does a denial of our sin then make Jesus a liar? Someone would say, I'm, I'm not saying Jesus is a liar. I'm just saying I don't have sin. I don't need it. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, so I take the hymn here in verse 10 to be God, uh, the Father. Contextually, John seems to have him foremost in mind as he writes, though, again, Jesus has been mentioned denying that we have sin saying we have never sinned makes god a liar since god says that we have sinned and that we have commi- uh, that we do commit sin we are sinners this person is saying he is not and therefore he has not uh, he's not a sinner and he doesn't commit sin and that is uh, that is the epitome of apostasy uh, so that is how this denial of sin makes God a liar. What What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I don't think these false teachers come right out and say, God the Father's a liar. Jesus is a liar. You know, they're, they're not going to be so blatant about that. They're uh, couching it in different terms in order to get your belief to switch to what they believe. But if you remember, John, he says in his gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, a denial of our sin means that we're not in danger of perishing because of sin. And if we're not in danger of perishing from sin, then the only begotten Son certainly doesn't need to be given up on our behalf. And if the cross then is unnecessary for eternal life, then all you need to do is fill in the blank, right? Whatever these false teachers say is the way you should act and believe and who you should follow John looks at the logic of these false teachers and he undoes it in one move. He says they're making the Father and Jesus into liars. And this is how we battle false doctrine. Don't let people like this play the shell game, dizzying you with, quote, knowledge, falsely so-called. Because most false doctrine is either a a direct or usually an indirect attack on the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And John calls that out for what it is. It's changing who Jesus is so that your loyalty can be compromised in order to get you to follow them 
to do what they think you should be doing in order to justify their own desire and sin and walk in darkness. Which again, at the end of the day, whether it's blatant or behind the scenes, they're just after the sex and the money and the power because they love darkness and they, they love destroying things. They're like their father, the devil. They come to kill, kill and steal and destroy. So that's what we see here in John chapter 1. Any final notes here, Nick? Man, we flew today. Um, let me circle back to uh, the idea of confession. And if I understood right, you were when you talked about confession, it, uh, it, it sounds like that, I mean, these are confessional statements, right? Right. Um, and I think that's right. Uh, what, what's interesting is, first, what comes to mind is that is very different than uh, what uh, what we in the churches of Christ have have kind of held to. Um, we we are not confessional, we are not creedal. Uh, no creed but Christ. Uh, what? No confession but Scripture. Something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean. It, it's, it's evident John has this going on in his day, and he provides these uh, very, very succinct but uh, very full confessional statements. Right. And this, very early on, finds practice in uh, the early church. You do have creedal statements already being formulated and inserted into New Testament documents. Yep. 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 3... Uh, all of these are examples where you find creedal statements. Right. But then as you get further down the road, and in some cases to guys who knew the guys who wrote the books, right. uh, Ignatius, uh, for example, he, he seems to have in mind, he doesn't call it such, I don't believe, but he does have these statements of what the church believes. Uh, Irenaeus in uh, Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 10, says, the church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the virgin, uh, the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection of the dead, the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things into one, and to raise up anew all flesh of the human race, the whole human race, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth, things under the earth, that every tongue should confess to him, by the way, that's Philippians 2, and that he should execute just judgment towards all, that he should send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates together with the ungodly and unrighteous and wicked and profane among men into everlasting fire and may in the exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous. Uh, That seems to be a phrase concerning theosis. Again, we mentioned that earlier. Go check out that episode. Uh, And holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance and may surround them with everlasting glory. Uh, You do have these 
early Christian confessions. And I, I believe we would be well served in at least reading these things. Um, fine, we don't want to become fully confessional or creedal. I get it. That's, that's fine. But at some point, you do need to formulate and explain, tell other people what you believe. And I understand, you know, just quoting Scripture and, and, uh, and all that, that's vital. But to have, again, suitcase language whereby you can unpack. I'm, I'm confident Irenaeus can unpack every single one of these phrases and connect it right back to Scripture um, in order to break down the faith that the whole church confessed at the time and also to refute the, the false teachers of his day. So, and, and that's what John seems to be doing in giving these brief confessional statements concerning Jesus. What do you say about Jesus? Uh, and so, very interesting, at least for me, again, having the background in Churches of Christ where we traditionally, historically, have been um, opposed to confessions and creeds and that sort of thing, even from the beginning uh, with Alexander Campbell and all that. Uh, so, at any rate, that's that was what was fascinating to me. I don't know if you want to comment on that or if you want to move on to something else. Yeah, no, I think that is really interesting. If you think about the advantage of a confessional statement, a creedal statement, in the beginning with the apostles handing on the faith on you know down to the church and then the elders continuing the um, the holding on to that faith and handing it down and teaching it, if you have a large amount of people who can't read or in a limited number of copies of, you know, text directly from the apostles, um, it, and not everything they said by word of mouth is written down as well. You have that that passes down through oral tradition. Then the power, the usefulness, the practicality of creedal statements is incredible. I mean, you pack these things into, like you said, suitcase language, and it's simple enough for people to hold on to and to keep holding on to for when they encounter ideas that are challenging that. Uh, as they go along in life. And so, yeah, John uses these creedal statements. It, it's it's an apostolic thing. And so the question is, are these creedal statements that continue to go on from generation to generation, like you said, through Ignatius, through Irenaeus, through uh, even down to, uh, you know, the councils that will take place and the Apostles' Creed that everybody signs on to? Uh, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, I mean, all of it does go back to Scripture. You can unpack that. It It is... Uh, right and truthful. And when you look at those statements in the early church fathers and the patristic writings, their claim is always that we did not make this up. This comes from the apostles. This is what we have always taught. Go to all the churches, go talk to all the bishops around everywhere you can travel. They hold to this belief. They hold to these statements. And so I think that's uh, worth examining. That's worth taking note of. You can't just brush that aside. And so not only does it mean that it's, it's um, something that can be useful today, these kinds of creedal statements, it's also something that, um, okay, before we make our own creedal statements, maybe we should go back and look at the ones that have already been made, like the earliest ones, right, in the first right. few centuries, and be like, uh, uh, who are we? To say that those creedal statements in the first few centuries are not right. <laughs> it's like, what, how arrogant is that, right? Like, they're way closer to the apostles than we are. Like, who are we to say that that's not from the apostles? And so it, it's, it's very important, I think, to take a look at what those 
early generations of Christians held to, believed, persevered in, died for, uh, and not to just write that off or to replace it with our own modern creedal statements. And so I would continue to agree with our own traditional background of the rejection of modern creedal statements. You have lots of creedal statements from denominations, from um, uh, things that have popped up in the last five or 600 years, and I would continue to be very hesitant of those things. Why would I need those things if I already have creedal statements that are 17, 1800 years old? <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't need uh, the Westminster Confession, right? I need the Apostles' Creed. That's what I need. I need the Apostles' Creed. So that's my uh, dovetailing onto your your uh, talk about creeds. <laughs> and at the same time, I, I guess I would insert uh, the caveat concerning the recognition that these rules of faith, uh, that's uh, how Irenaeus described it, the rule of faith, are subservient to uh, the, the scriptures, right? Right. Uh, not to put them on par right. with uh, scripture, but... Uh, to, to have the language necessary uh, and and to tie it back to uh, the scriptures the, the the language necessary to explain in a very brief way what we believe but then when you do have opportunity to unpack it to say oh and this is why this is the foundation of this mm-hmm. um, I think uh, it probably should be mentioned as well yep that's true that's true uh, it, it reinforces uh, one another the the what they say came down from the apostles and uh, and what they have written from the apostles. And so they used both. They used both the oral tradition and the written tradition, and it was important that one reinforced the other and that you don't have this, um, this major uh, dissonance between the two. Because if you did, then it, then it started to be highly questionable, right? And people would question it. They would say, wait a second, that is not what we hand, that's, that's not what was handed down. Hold on a second. <laughs> and then they'd start pulling out the scriptures and say, no, we, we have here what we have always believed. And it conforms to this uh, letter that we have from Paul or this gospel from uh, one of the four writers. And Anything else? No, that's it. Swordplay is streaming on several major platforms, uh, not only in Apple Podcasts, but also in Spotify, uh, Google Music, Amazon Music. Uh, go into these various places. You can find the podcast there, download load them to your device, take them with you, listen on the go. Uh, and uh, so there's that. If you have a question... We will answer it on air. We've done it before. We will continue to do it as questions come in. You can text those questions into the Swordplay text line. That is area code 316-24-SWORD. That's area code 316-247-9673. Also, you can email that question into swordplaypodcast at gmail.com email your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com also if you leave a review in apple podcast uh, you actually write a review about what you like about the show you will be entered into a raffle to win free swordplay swagger so we got the new logo we're wanting to flex it show it off to the world uh your favorite bible podcast and so uh you know might be a coffee mug might be a hat you know might be a shirt who knows but write a review and it can be yours. Right now you have a great chance, a one in four chance of uh, getting getting something. So get get your tickets in while it's hot. All right. And that is it. Thank you 
diligent listener for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture. <laughs>